I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi, Rare friends. Welcome back to Once Upon a Gene. So registration has opened for the 2023 Global Genes Rare Advocacy Summit in September in San Diego, California. Go to globalgenes.org to check out the agenda and get it on your calendars. I cannot wait to see your face. I have a super special mom today on the show. Uh, We've been chatting for several years, and we finally landed on a topic for the episode today. She is the patient registry queen. She has 20 years of experience in pharmaceutical industry and is volunteering her expertise to help the rare disease community in memory of her beautiful daughter, Miriam, who died from a mitochondrial disease called Lee syndrome. She's your oracle for registry info, and she's created a comprehensive resource guide to help you and your foundation figure out what direction is right for you. Please enjoy my conversation with my friend, Sophia Zilber. Hi, Sophia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Effie. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah, we've kind of had this plan to record a podcast for a couple years now on various topics, and I think we've we've finally nailed it down. I know. I know. I can't believe it, but um, I'm so glad. (laughs) Well, Sophia, give us a little background for those who don't know you about who you are and your rare mom experience and what you're up to. Yeah. I first had a personal experience with rare disease um, six years ago when I had my uh, newborn daughter, Miriam. She had a rare disease. She had Lee syndrome, which is a, a type of mitochondrial disease. And she was born perfectly healthy. And then she became very, very sick around three weeks old. And she died a month later. So tragically, you know, her story was very, very short. I have three other children. I have three older boys. So it's been very difficult. And uh, professionally, I work in data analysis uh, on clinical trials data. I work in the pharmaceutical industry. So after the loss of my daughter, I've been trying to sort of use my experience and my knowledge to help out with data. And I've volunteered a lot of times, a lot of time to help with data, such as patient registries, mostly with patient organizations. And I'm also currently on the board and also responsible for the patient registry for the Cure Mita Foundation. And Cure Mita is an, as a patient group that focuses on, on Lee syndrome specifically. Mm. Thanks for sharing a little bit about Miriam. I hear all of these things and it never ceases to amaze me, like the sheer will that a rare disease parent has and hearing all of the jobs that you manage from three boys to a foundation to your data stuff and to your job with Alexion. It's really quite remarkable. And I bet you're a little tired today. (laughs) 
I am. <laughs> I am. You're, you're totally right. I am tired and I have so much to do, but I think I feel like it's important. And so I try to make the time for everything that I'm doing. And I hope, you know, that it's helping this community. I mean, that's the least I can do. Mm-hmm. Well, you're doing something really important and something that I actually get a lot of questions, especially from families who are just kind of starting out and beginning their patient advocacy groups. So today we're going to talk about registries and starting a registry and why or why not maybe you need one and kind of just the, the nitty gritty of it in layman's terms for everybody. So can you tell us a little bit about what a patient registry is? Yeah. So patient registry is basically a collection of data that describes a specific disease, and that can be used for multiple purposes. It could be used to contact patients about clinical trials. It could be used to learn more about the disease. It could be used to understand the disease burden. It could be used to understand how people use healthcare systems, such as hospitals or uh, visits to the doctor or emergency room. It could also be used to understand natural history of the disease, although that's that's more involved usually. So yeah, there are lots of very, very valuable reasons to have a registry and lots of different purposes to the registries. So if there's so many reasons to have one, how do you go into it with more of a focus instead of trying to do everything all at once? How do you kind of decide what what the right path is and what information is going to be most valuable to your patient advocacy group? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that this is where a lot of groups, a lot of patient groups, you know, find this challenging. Like, how do they start? Which direction do you go into? There are lots of registry vendors that are available. How do you compare them? What are you focusing on? So I think this is a, this is a really good question. And that's where I sort of try to help. So I think some of the things that I usually... I recommend, you know, first sort of understand the scope and what can your group realistically do? What resources do you have? So obviously all patient groups are different. Some patient groups are completely volunteer, like our group here, Mida Foundation, and very small. Some groups are large and they have a lot of paid staff. So depending on them, you might be able to do more or less. Sometimes there's many groups in your disease. Sometimes they work together. Sometimes sometimes they don't work together. So again, depending on that, I can also kind of guide you as to what to do. I would say definitely think about what it is you want to get out of the registry. For example, do you want to make sure the data is accessible? Do you want to be able to recruit patients for clinical trials? I mean, that's a really important thing in rare disease because so many clinical trials either get delayed or completely stop because they're not able to um, recruit enough patients. Do you want to share insights with the community? I mean, I think that one is a huge, huge, very important thing. Like when we talk about patient advocacy and being patient focused, there's a lot of research and also even some that I participate, uh, some that I contributed to. And we know that registry participants really appreciate it when they are not in the dark when they get results back and they know what's going on after they participate in the registry, what happens to their data, what the results are, and it's shared back with them. So there is lots of consideration like that. Do you want to raise awareness of your disease? I mean, all of those things are important. One of the things I've done is I've created, I've started a working group recently. Uh, This working group is done through FUSE, and FUSE is a data science community. It consists of 
mostly I would say industry representatives, but others as well, like academia and patient advocates. And so I started with two uh, really amazing colleagues. One of them is Danielle Boyce, who I think many patient advocates, many patients uh, know, because she's helping a lot of people as well uh, in a similar way that I do. And we recently produced three uh, three resources with the group. One is called a transparency checklist for patient organizations. One is called a, a guide to starting a registry. And another is myths and facts about the registries. Yeah. So if we're talking about like a super small patient advocacy group, narrow, rare, ultra rare, not very many patients, no money, all volunteer, parent ran, how do they go about starting their registry? and kind of deciphering between which companies to hold it with? Or do they kind of just get going in the beginning with like a spreadsheet style? Like how do they get an advisor to make a registry without spending all their money? Yeah. So that's a really good question. I mean, I think uh, the truth is that although there are different ways to think about the registries, but the reality is that when it comes to data, it's really helpful to think in terms of less is more. So a lot of groups think that they need to collect as much data as possible from a lot of data sources and create many, many surveys and and wait until they they accumulate a lot of data and then you know making it available to the researchers or companies. The the truth is that really less is more. So if you have a smaller data set with the information that's relevant about the disease uh, that tells you interesting things and findings about the specific disease, and that's often better because the, the quality of the data can be a lot better when you have a shorter survey rather than multiple long surveys. Uh, when the data is relevant to the patient population. So for example, when data is when questions are not necessarily relevant, patients tend to sort of leave their responses missing or they, since they're just not sure how to respond. So for a small group, having a, a registry that is that has one or two surveys, very relevant to their disease, where they have access to all of the data, uh, not just the summary, but all of the data. I mean, that's that's really critical and that can make a huge difference. I always recommend to the patient groups to ask, is there a data dictionary available? D- data dictionary is just a document that describes the data structure. And I know that for people who don't work with the data, you may not like necessarily tell them anything, but if they have an advisor, and one thing I really, really recommend is for every um, group to really have an advisor who has data expertise and can sort of go through that data data dictionary and assess it and understand it and say if this is the appropriate uh, format for the data for depending on the on the goals of that organization I mean that can really help definitely ask for a data dictionary that's that's something that should be available you know publicly and can be provided. Understand if you will be getting the, the data, uh, all of the data. I mean, that's really, really important. If we're talking about, again, patient advocacy and patients driving research, if we are asking patients to enroll, then we need to have that data so that we can report back on the results. Understand what you can do with that data. So unfortunately, we hear from so many groups that they started the registry and with the hope that researchers will do something and then researchers didn't do anything and so nothing has ever happened. And that's very disappointing for the patients who, who enrolled. That's very disappointing for, for the patient foundation. 
So think about it in that way. Like researchers may work on your data or they may they might not work on your data. We just don't know. And when you have uh, data available and it's in a good format and a good structure, you can um, you can share the insights, you can share the findings, you can make a poster. A patient foundation can do all of that. You can you can use the registry to recruit for clinical trials. You can share insights. You can raise. So there's really so so much that you can do, and it doesn't have to cost a lot. So as an example, our foundation is using Quartz, and I want to give a Quartz a credit for having a data dictionary and having data in a really great format where a patient foundation can use the data and do a, a lot with it. Our group has done a lot and others who are using that platform. So that's one example and it's completely free. So there are definitely options like that. Mm. I love when you mentioned making the surveys more niche and shorter. I think every family could really have a little less of the survey. I know I've filled out probably dozens and dozens of hours worth of surveys. And you're right, they do just kind of get really off track and ask sort of the same thing over and over, even after you've answered it and it's not relevant. And I think that gives families definitely some fatigue because they're doing this in their very, very, very minimal spare time. And so really concentrating it on the disease makes absolute sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to be clear when patients enroll, sometimes, unfortunately, their child died. Others have child who is alive. So you have to be clear in your survey, like think about that. If, if their child died, the way the question is asked, does that apply to them? If it doesn't, it's important to make a note or have them skip that question. So things like that really make a difference as well. It absolutely does. I actually have several people who've contacted me with that exact issue of getting survey questions even after they've said their child has passed. And it's really disheartening. And it makes it impersonal when it's supposed to be the most personal thing. Right. Yeah, maybe one other thing I just wanted to mention, like in the global registry, sometimes when we ask questions about like education of parents or insurance, that information is not as necessarily meaningful because it could mean completely different things in different countries. Right. So these are just some little, you know, tips to keep in mind. Yeah. Can you explain raw data? Yeah, well, raw data is basically imagine a spreadsheet, like an Excel spreadsheet, and it will have a patient. So instead of patient name, right, like we, if it's the identified, it would normally be an ID. An ID is just a number, like it could be a number one, or it could be a group of numbers or letters. And then every single response, um, so if patient, and uh, you know, responds, did you have seizures or did you have I don't know any other any other questions they respond to on the survey. It would have like a like a it would have a column in that spreadsheet, and it would be it would have like a little you know name like seizure or you know a race or sex or country for whatever question, and it will have their response. And then if patients go back and they respond to the survey twice, they may have two rows. So that's one way to uh, structure the data, and that's how the raw data would look. When the data is structured well, even if you're not an, ex- an expert data analyst, you can still use the data to, to find some insights, uh, even in Excel. And I think it's very important, especially if you want to work with industry, you want to help them, let's say, recruit for clinical trials. 
it's, it's, really, it's really important that you know the data to some extent. In other words, you don't have to, you know, run really complicated statistical models on it. But if, if you're being asked, like, how many, you know, how many patients in your data have seizures? How many patients are from a particular country? Or how many patients are between 5 and 10 years old? That's something that every group, you know, should be able to easily look up and kind of have that information available, I think, because that will tell the the company, let's say that you're working with the researcher, that whether or not there are potential study participants for their study or for their clinical trial. And it also shows that you understand your registry and you're kind of like responsible for it. That it's not just something that you have, but it's actually something that you own and you can kind of talk to it. So I think that that's really, that's really important to have kind of like that, that basic knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say are some of the pros and cons of collecting different types of data and why to do one over the other or kind of as much as you can or really be just more specific in in what you're collecting? Yeah. Does it depend on your size of your PAG or how much money you have or what you're giving grants out to? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, Patient reported data is probably the most common that patient groups are doing. It's where patients go in and respond to surveys. And uh, what are the pros and cons? I mean, the pros that it's the easiest one to start. It's the easiest one to recruit a lot of patients because, you know, you can share about it and patients can sign up. It's probably the easiest one to do, you know, if you want to have a global registry from the entire world to be able to join, that's probably the easiest one. In terms of data privacy, like if, uh, if you, you know, patient reported data is probably the easiest one to do that way. I mean, the cons of it is that you may have a lot of missing or inconsistent data and because patients are reporting the data themselves, you know, if they don't remember or they leave questions missing. There's no doctor next to them. There isn't anyone to kind of like, we're not verifying that information. So you may have data that doesn't make sense. And this is where you have to think about, you can minimize these issues in a really big way by creating the survey in a better way and creating less questions, less burdensome participation and uh, just keeping in mind some things about how you structure questions. That's where a data advisor can really help. This is where you can kind of minimize those problems, uh, but you'll still have them. You'll still have them in patient reported data. And also uh, one, you know, I guess one limitation is that when you talk about patient reported data with like a company or a researcher, I mean, it is always kind of limitation that we don't, the information is not verified. Right, so the patient enters it. We we haven't really checked, and also some things that are very hard to collect in patient reported data, and probably don't. I wouldn't recommend collecting them. Are like medications, labs, because even if we ask patients to kind of go back to their chart and enter those values, I mean, there might be just a lot of mistakes in this kind of data, and it's just probably not reliable enough. So I wouldn't even collected at all. Now, there's other types like collecting electronic health records. And that one has, you know, other pros and cons. Like it's hard to make it international because of the the privacy and the different laws in different countries. Uh, It's very hard to make it international and even the languages, you know. So if the company working with, you know, if you the company you're working with, let's say, set up in English, then you would have to translate, somebody would have to translate these records to work with other countries. It's not as easy to make it international. It may be more reliable in a sense that this data is coming from electronic health records where it was entered by a healthcare provider, but it's still 
there may still be mistakes in it and things like that. So even in a clinical trials data, like when we work with clinical trials, there's lots of things there where uh, information needs to be verified, clarified, corrected, and things like that. But when we work on a clinical trial, we have a huge team who are all dedicated to that effort, and it's a, it's a big job. But when it's not done, you just assume that that's what, you know, there will be things that are not as accurate. You know, it, it, the electronic health records may not be as quick, you know, to enroll patients. And electronic health records make sense if they're collected consistently and the data is extracted from them. So if a patient goes in and uploads their uh, uh, several PDFs, that's not really, that doesn't really mean you're collecting electronic health records. It, electronic health records means that you're collecting it all the time, you know, let's say every six months or once a year from all the providers, kind of extract that data, create data sets, and then, and then you can use these, these data sets. Um, so it's, it's more work for sure. It's a lot more work. It's not something that you have to work with another company to do that. Yeah, I know. Like we we had signed we have signed up with Citizen, who collects the electronic health records. But like you said earlier, it's only for people in the United States. I think technically, people from outside the United States can upload their information, but who has the time to do that? And then there's that language barrier, right? I think of all of the groups that I know, many of them have several different registries. They're on many different platforms. Many of them have a huge population that are not in the United States and don't speak English. So there's like all these sort of sorts of barriers that are up and patient advocacy groups are kind of scrambling to find someone to help them translate things or, you know, whatever it may be. And then it seems like it gets a little messy or it can get messy, which I guess like you're saying, there should always be someone checking everything that's coming in the moment it comes in and staying on top of it and being sort of like that bean counter, which also seems really difficult. Yeah, it is. That's why, you know, I guess you just have to think about what are you able to do and what is really the priority? Uh, is the priority for you to get maybe electronic health records, which may have, you know, labs, medications and data like that, but you're going to get a smaller population because it's probably going to be just for the U.S. or just for the English speaking countries? Or is your priority, let's say, to to bring the whole community together from the entire world? And you're going to have patient reported data, which has other, you know, pros and cons, but it has also other benefits. So honestly, there is no perfect registry platform. There's no perfect data. You just have to weigh in all the factors. What about data privacy? I know some people in the rare disease community don't care. I'm pretty much sort of one of those. I would be handing out Ford's genetic report on postcards if I could, but I know that's not realistic and doesn't make sense for most people. And data is a big, big deal, right? And it's also money. And it's also, it's a lot of things. So what do you say about the registries and their privacy policies and what questions patient advocacy group leaders should ask when they're choosing their their registry platform and what maybe they can let go or make sure they really focus on? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there are a lot of misunderstandings for the data privacy in general. So usually the registries are protected by the IRB, which it's an institutional review board, and they are responsible for assuring that, you know, the privacy is there. I think 
one of the misunderstandings that I see a lot is about HIPAA. HIPAA is uh, something that only applies to covered entities. Uh, covered entities are basically healthcare providers or those who work with them. There's a, there's a very narrow definition of what covered entities are under HIPAA. So let's say patient foundations are not covered by HIPAA or you know, many of the re registry vendors, unless they're associated maybe with a healthcare institution, they are not uh, covered by HIPAA. So it's important to keep in mind. So when somebody says like, oh, you know, this data is HIPAA compliant, it, it, they may, may be trying to say that it's secure, but HIPAA doesn't cover, doesn't protect that data. Does that make sense? Yeah. We talked about HIPAA a long time ago, back in an episode with Nasha Finner from Fox G1. And learning about what HIPAA actually was, was kind of entertaining and how that word is thrown around just even in, you know, general life and what it actually means. I think is a huge misconception. It is, and it is thrown around. So I think, you know, when registered vendor is not, you know, covered by HIPAA, it's always best to say that their data is secure rather than, you know, HIPAA compliant or HIPAA protected. So that's just important to know just because it's a, such a big, I feel like there's so many misunderstandings about that. I think what's important really is when your registry is protected by the IRB, I think it's very important that the information about what IRB it is and their contact information is publicly shared. And it's in the, the, the checklist that I created with my working group. It's one of the items there. I mean, IRB is there to protect registry participants. So they absolutely need to know what it is and what the contact information is, right? And I rare, like I, I've rarely seen it. It's usually, okay, our registries are be protected and that's it. Honestly, I, do, I think that it's very rare that a patient would contact IRB. I think that 99.9% .9 of the time, if a patient has a concern, they will go directly to the patient organization. And each patient organization should really have a, like an open door policy, right? Like if a, if a patient comes and they have a concern, it should be fully addressed and it should never, ever normally kind of go you know, further than that. But um, regardless the what the IRB is, I mean, for transparency purposes, that should always be that was should always be shared. And I definitely encourage patients to to ask, you know, if it's not disclosed, no matter if they want to contact IRB or not, but just because it's so important for transparency. So another thing that I think directs people's decision is the buzz term, if you will, that patients own their data. Can you sort of talk about maybe the myth to that? Yeah, I think that one is um, is interesting, right? Because we always hear, you know, patients own their data, patients own their data. And honestly, like, I don't think we really know what it means. So I think when people say patients own their data, they what they usually refer to is that patients can say that, let's say they agree for their data to be shared with researchers or they agree uh, to be contacted, let's say. So they, they make those choices. But do they own this data? I don't know. If they one day decide to withdraw and they don't no longer want to participate in the registry, would their data still remain? Well, if the data was extracted, let's say if the data is already with, with a researcher or with the patient groups at, group itself or with anybody else, it's probably going to, like, I think it's probably going to, you know, still be there. So do patients own the data? I don't know. I think, I think this term is misleading. I think, I think there should be a better definition for our community about what patient, what what it really means that patient owned data, so that patients are really informed about what 
what do they mean when they hear it or what when they you know when, when they say that yeah yeah the transparency thing that you were talking about and maybe it's like an opt-in sort of idea you know i think all of us know that once we put something out there or it's on the internet or you know we've put it in writing in any way or made a video that it isn't yours anymore right exactly but that maybe there is a secure a secure place and that you can at least like stop it when you want to and you know you can have that but whatever you have put out there technically is out there yes absolutely yeah so how do patient groups shop around for the right platform to use especially with barriers of financial ability language accessibility and country accessibility like geographically like is that just still like getting into your think tank and like having the nitty gritty of like what you want to get out of your platform and how do you know who to trust how do you make these decisions because you have a lot of people's lives in your hands when you're signing these papers or asking your patient advocacy uh, families to take their precious time to to contribute so how do you really make that choice with integrity that's that's really difficult i think yeah that that's that's a hard one but Again, so I would say, you know, identify why you're creating the registry. That's the first thing. Like, what is your purpose? Is it to contact patients? Is it to understand um, the disease burden? Is it to learn about the disease? Kind of understand what the purpose of your registry is. And is it feasible? Like, in other words, if you're saying that you want your data to be used as a, as a control arm in a clinical, tri in a clinical trial, well, that, not every patient foundation can do that because that the requirements for that type of data would be very, very high. So just think about what is your purpose and what are you realistically going to be able to achieve like with the group that with the patient group that you have and the resources that you have. Again, find a data advisor, definitely find someone who it's not necessarily a researcher or doctor. I think some groups think that it has to be a researcher or doctor. It's not. It's somebody who works with clinical data, like as a data analyst. It's, it's more of a technical skill. It's not a clinical skill. So a data analyst would normally work with the researcher, with the doctor, but it's not a doctor itself. So definitely recommend that, finding out if there's a data dictionary, getting it, seeing it, going over it with your data advisor, finding out if you can export the data, if you can have access to all of the data. And also like some, sometimes there is a misunderstanding thinking that when you see kind of like the summary reports, that that means you have data. That doesn't mean you have data. Those are just the summary reports. The data is actually the raw data that's in a spreadsheet. You know, decide what type of data to collect, decide how you're going to analyze this data. Again, if you if you're collecting data, waiting for the researcher to one day do something with it, it may not happen, or it may happen many years from now. And, and one thing is is that another thing is important to know is that a lot of groups uh, believe that you have to have a lot of data before you're looking at it. In reality, the best thing to do is to look at the, at the data like the same you know the same day that the first patient enrolls, uh, because this way you can identify any issues with the data. Anything that you may want to maybe update in your survey, all of that you can catch early and make it better. So it's so, so important for the quality of the data to see the data as early as you can. So think about that. Like, what is your plan? You know, how can that happen? You know, definitely find out about data privacy and share, you know, be transparent, share everything transparently. All information that should be shared publicly, that should be on the website, easy to find. 
if a patient advocacy group has done all of the right things and they've combed their data from the very beginning and they're getting discouraged because pharma and researchers and nobody has been interested in it, how should they pivot or how should they think about pivoting to leverage that data in maybe another way or pitching it? What advice do you have for the people who have all this stuff just sitting there and, they, and they're not getting any kind of action from it or don't necessarily know next steps? I mean, I would say, don't worry about those researchers and industry. You can do so much with data on your own. If you have data that you can access and you can draw insights from it, go ahead and use it. Don't wait for anybody. You can use it to raise awareness, share insights back to your community. I mean, that's so valuable. Uh, create a poster and share it at conferences. If you have more resources, like if you are if you have medical advisors who are willing to help, you can write a paper. But if you don't, that's okay. Do a poster, share it. Make sure that companies who do clinical trials on your disease that they know that you have the registry, and that let them know that if you if they are looking for participants for their clinical trial, or if a researcher is looking for participants for their study, make sure that they know that they can use your registry and they'll be reaching out to you eventually. So like we always let everybody know that, you know, we have this registry and if you want to share any information through the registry or contact our, contact our patients and share anything with them, like a study or clinical trial, we, it's available and you can easily do that. It's important that they are aware. So uh, do that. Again, know your data. The, the better you know the, your data, the more others will see value in, the, in your data because they will take it more seriously when you can kind of speak to your data and share a little bit about what you're finding and what's there. And it gives them a better idea. So for example, in our case, we spoke to one researcher who is really well known in our field. And he said, oh, you know, you have a registry. But he said, I'd like to understand it better. Can you like walk me through what your data looks like? And I was so happy he asked this question because so few researchers do that. They usually just like either say, you know, okay, you know, he actually, he's so busy, but he found an hour and he just met with us and we went over kind of the summary of our data. And then he said, well, he said, well, that makes a lot of sense and I really like it. But I was happy that he said it only after he saw the data. And, you know, so definitely know your data. And also knowing that the data you have represents the, represents what's known about the disease. I mean, that's really important to know. So in other words, like if you have a pediatric disease, but your average age of a patient is like 40 years old, then maybe you maybe there's something wrong. Like maybe you're not collecting the right data or maybe there's a mistake somewhere. It could be anything really. So when we spoke to that researcher, he he wanted to focus on things like that. Like what's the age of the patients? What's the age of diagnosis? Things like that. And then he said, well, that makes sense in terms of what we know. And so I think that's a really valuable registry. So that's very important. I also encourage researchers to ask to take the time, although they're so busy, but it's, it's really important since it, it really makes the data better and it helps everyone in the end. Yeah, we're, we're all co-workers. I love that you got that question asked and you were like, uh, I'm Sophia Zilber. I definitely know all the answers <laughs> I <to> know. That. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, and you know, those that makes me think too, like I know for CTNMB1 especially and so many other diseases that we don't have those older patients caught because they never got genetic testing, you know, and they're misdiagnosed for various things like cerebral palsy. And so another part of that sort of mission is getting more patients discovered by genetic testing itself, which is part of our mission. And yeah, what you said earlier, right? Like if nobody's seemingly dipping into your data, 
there's so much power in showing up, uh, making posters, empowering your community with transparency. It goes a long way. Absolutely. And you, you, your community becomes so much stronger. And even having, you know, just showing that you have many patients in your registry, that just tells the research community that you have a community that's interested in research. So you increase the value of, like you increase interest in the research of your disease, right? In uh, interest in clinical trials and your disease. I mean, that's huge. Yes. Can you say that again? <laughs> say that last part again. Yeah. So you, when you, when you can show that you have a, a big community that's all standing together and you show that using your registry, there's so much more interest from the companies and researchers. They say, oh, look, there's a community here that there's more interest in studying your disease. So <laughs> here it is again. Amen. Listen to that, families. You have so much to contribute and you are number one. So know that. Well, Sophia, I mean, I hope people got a little taste of and got their little brains working and maybe got some questions answered or even maybe hopefully have some more questions to ask as they kind of move forward in deciding what they're going to do with their registry situations. So if there's anything I didn't ask today that you really wanted to address, please do so. And otherwise, can people bombard you with questions? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to help. People can email me or um, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I, I will also share uh, the links to some of the materials I've created. And if you can share them in a podcast episode, that would be great. Yep. We'll put all the slides that Sophia was referring to in the show notes of this episode. So you'll find some links in there that maybe you can get a little more clear of a picture. All right, Sophia, you rock. And thank you for everything that you do. I love you a lot. Thank you, Effie. It's mutual. Thank you so much. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.